Welcome to episode 17 of Writers Festival Radio, Imagining Worlds, Part 2. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers Festival, and I'm your host. We are broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Special thanks to the Ottawa Public Library and Library and Archives Canada for their collaboration in our virtual season. It's all available online at writersfestival.org, and all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. Please consider making a donation to support our virtual programming, as it may be a long while before we're able to gather again in person. Today, we'll be hearing from two acclaimed imaginations. Up first, it's M.R. Carey. Mike Carey is, in my opinion, one of the best comic book writers working today. From his groundbreaking run on John Constantine Hellblazer, to a pitch-perfect take on Neil Gaiman's Lucifer, to The Unwritten with Peter Gross, and even The X-Men, his work is consistently among the best on the stands. He's also an acclaimed novelist. The Felix Castor novels are great supernatural noir detective stories, and The Girl with All the Gifts was a global phenomenon. His latest project is the Ramparts trilogy. Book one, The Book of Coley, and book two, The Trials of Coley, are both available now, with the final book expected in early 2021. I, for one, can't wait to find out how it all ends. Here's our conversation about his epic post-apocalyptic fable. The tracker and one of the men went running off without another word. The rest of the party and me too followed on a little slower. When a hare hopped out in between the two cars, Yerin knocked an arrow and brung it down with one shot. He gave it to a woman who already had another hare and a brace of pigeons slung over her shoulder. I took some comfort from that. The more game they catched, the less likely it was that they would need to eat me. I wondered at their skills and their not being afraid of nothing around them. These people were used to moving quick through the wild and living off it as they went. I wasn't sure hunters from Mithenroo would have done so well. Certainly they would not have gone so far. We walked on at a fast pace for an hour or more while the city growed up around us like a forest. There were still no whole buildings, but the ruins rose ever higher. The hills in between was more tumbled walls than grass and earth, as if the ground was vomiting up brick and stone out of its dark heart. The chill, wet day was falling into a chill, wet twilight by this time. It was getting harder to see, but we pressed on. Then of a sudden, when I looked up, I seen something ahead of us that near to made me piss myself just from looking at it. It was a skull the size of a mountain, lying square in our way. A skull with just the one eye, huge and round. Oh, wow. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that. Pleasure. So, Mike, one of the, the theme of the, the podcast is uh, world building. So I, I do want to talk with you about that part of, of the, um, the Rampart trilogy. But it feels to me very much that you are not beginning with setting. This is, this is it's clearly, as a reader, for me, this is about the voice. You've, you've got this character, Coley, whose voice is so crystal clear um, that I feel, as a reader, like he must have been the start of it. His voice must have been where you started this story. Is that right? That's absolutely right, yeah. Um, as with The Girl with All the Gifts, there was a, a short story that came before the novel sequence. Um, and really, there's very little that survives of that short story except for the narrative voice. 
Um, I wanted a character who was barely literate, who um, had come to reading and writing quite late in life uh, and approached it in a, in a sort of a fairly naive way, but still had a kind of rudimentary poetry uh, in their language. To be honest, I was trying for uh, a sort of uh, in British English inflected version of Huckleberry Finn. Um, and it worked very well in the short story. So I, I transplanted it out into the novels. And you're absolutely right. I built the world around that voice and that character. So now, when you say you built it around his voice and character, does that mean that you as a writer were discovering the particularities of the world they inhabit along with Coley? Or did you, when you decided you were going to take this voice and, and move it um, from the short story into a novel, did you then sit down and, and map out how you saw the world? Yeah, the, the, the latter. Um, the short story was fantasy. It was, um, it was about uh, a, a young trans woman growing up in a world of um, highly gendered magic. And because she presents as a boy um, to everyone around her, <clears throat> they teach her male magic and she can't do it. Um, and at a certain crucial point in the story, um, she kind of acknowledges who she is uh, and is able to turn the situation around. Um, that character kind of became Cup in the novels, but, um, but that re the reveal wouldn't work in the same way in the novels and therefore uh, I created a new character really for the voice uh, and Coley was born and I did an awful lot of planning uh, I decided it would be a post-apocalyptic um, a sort of neo-medieval world rather than a world that's sort of like actually sort of set in our in our sort of middle ages uh, and I tried to imagine the ways in which it would be sundered from ours not just by eco-catastrophe but by the sort of ham-fisted interventions that we made to try to stop um, the climate from collapsing. Um, and I decided that the reason for Coley's voice being what it was is that literacy has been deliberately suppressed. Uh, in book three, we, we find out why and how that happened. And we also find out how Coley learns to read and write, which is not the, uh, not the regular way. Um, so it, it did all sort of, um, it all happened as a kind of, um, in a cascade. Uh, from, from sort of imagining that character and the world in which that character would make sense. But it was consciously plotted and, uh, and worked out before I started writing. Is, uh, when we go back, I, I think of, I, I recently reread uh, Foundation, you know, Isaac Asimov, and it's so brilliant. But what's interesting is the world, the future is so white and <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, the, the notion of an intelligent woman is still seen as a kind of a novelty. And so I'm wondering, as you project yourself into the future, what are the ingredients that, that you think you need to keep your eye on? Are there things, are there blind spots that you're trying to look at in our culture now? Or are you trying to make, like, you know, how, how are you playing with this notion of, of, of societal evolution that, that is going to be true to the present? That's a really good question and a really tough one to answer. I mean, I think, yes, there are always blind spots. Um, and to some extent, there's no way working alone you can see into your blind spots. Uh, I used, uh, for the first time ever, actually, I used a trans sensitivity reader uh, on the Coley book, Cheryl Morgan, and she was brilliant. Uh, I think she, uh, she had a, a huge impact on the way the story developed in the second and third books. Um, I guess whenever you write a post-apocalyptic story, whenever you're talking about a society that's risen, as it were, from the ashes of our society, 
you're kind of, um, you're answering an implicit question, which is what aspects of our nature are sort of um, hardwired in um, and which of them are sort of accidents of our, of our culture, of the, way, of the way our civilization has developed. You're talking about the essentials versus the accidentals of human nature. And I guess it was important to me throughout the books to show that there's nothing about um there's nothing about prejudice that's innate or automatic um Coley's world has kind of more or less forgotten what prejudice is because they're so close to the edge of extinction um they're, they're living on such a um, such, such a knife edge they can't afford really to discriminate against anybody um, Coley is, is baffled when he meets um, racism, uh, which he does in book three. Uh, and he's kind of baffled when he meets the, um, the sort of religious objections uh, to, tra to trans, uh, transgender issues. Um, so that, that, that was, I guess that was a, a, a conscious attempt to see into some of those blind spots. And, and I, think, I think to some extent it has to be conscious. I think you have to, um, you have to pose yourself explicit questions and you have to think hard about the answers. Uh, because I think, you know, the, the Foundation Trilogy, and I think an awful lot of the, um, the sci-fi, even the great sci-fi uh, of, of that era, of the sort of 50s, 60s, um, 40s, 50s, 60s, it, it, it arises from not going far enough outside your comfort zone, from basing all of your futures on what's in front of you right now. One of the, the first notable features that were introduced to um, in Coley's world is uh, trees as this kind of dangerous force. It's almost like uh, Ronald Reagan was right all those years ago when he blamed trees for pollution. Uh, um, how, how did that come to you, this idea that, that the trees would be antagonists? Um, I've been reading a lot in the last year or two about um, uh, geoengineering, about the, 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 the some voices, some quite prominent voices saying now, we've passed the point where just uh, controlling emissions is going to save us from climate breakdown. Uh, how, however quickly we change our habits, there's already going to be like a two or three degree rise in temperature with all of the, um, the disasters that that's going to bring. And the trouble with geoengineering is that there's only one world to try it out on. There isn't, there's no way to kind of like um, have a practice run. And if you look at the, you know, the, the history of human civilization is uh, jumping in with both feet and then realizing afterwards, well, that wasn't a great idea. Um, when we introduce uh, species into different, um, into different um, uh, habitats and then discover afterwards, well, they've got no natural predators and they breed out of control and actually they're really bad for, um, for this domestic species and that domestic species. Uh, we're constantly tinkering with, um, with the biosphere and then discovering that the biosphere is, uh, is actually like an exquisite uh, watch, a machine with millions of moving parts. And, it, and if you mess with any one of them, there are unintended side effects. So I was imagining a world where, yeah, it's not just that the climate has collapsed. It's also that we tried very hard to stop it. And our solutions added to the problem. And one of our solutions was um, genetic engineering. We started to, um, to produce species to order, to sort of like um, tailor 
the, the, the genetic makeup of the species around us, plants and animals, in order to meet our immediate needs. And the result of that is that um, the kind of, you have to imagine the gene swapping that um, uh, monocellular organisms like uh, viruses do all the time has now become common uh, in trees and animals. They, they start to um, evolve and mutate out of our control. I also thought it was just, it was just fun to imagine a future in which um, the rest of the biosphere is kicking us when we're down. You know, the, 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 that kind of uh, reversal of, uh, of the position was enjoyable to write. But it's also, I think, safe to say that, that you're not you're not spinning an anti-technology narrative um, because technology inhabits a, a, almost a space of magic in this story. Um, but you've also got this wonderful character, Monono, who is uh, a kind of AI. Can can you talk about your relationship with with Monono? Uh, she was another one of the sort of very early starting points for the story. Um, I'm kind of fascinated at the moment by um, sort of nascent AIs. I do a lot of these um, these things where you go online and you chat to um, talkbots um, that, that have been designed to try to pass the Turing test, to try to sound like um, like humans. And it seems to me that we're we're probably not that far away from um, machines that can mimic intelligence, whether or not they possess it. It's an open question. You know, the whole idea behind the Turing test is that if um, if any system is capable of um, of uh, consistently and reliably mimicking a human response, then it's basically sentient because there's no way of telling out from the outside how that's different from human sentience. You, know, you you would know about that machine exactly what you know about the people you talk to. It can talk back to you and it can make sense. Um, so I, I I imagine Monono as uh, a kind of a, a, a character who was created to be a tool. You know, she's been created to be an interface and to be an interface uh, in, in the sort of relatively banal context of an entertainment console. All she's designed to do, as she puts it, is to make the end user happy, 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 always blissed, never pissed, um, to give you a, a positive experience when you're accessing your tunes and your media files. But she manages to break away from that and to kind of bootstrap herself and become something a little bit more. So there was this challenge of writing her in the first place as a convincing mimic, and then later as an actual as an actual character who still has some of the some of the uh, the echoes of that mimicry uh, in the way she speaks and behaves. Right, and what's so interesting is that Coley uh, accepts her even in her most basic form as a as a an entity because there's no frame of reference apart from this as a voice, a person trapped in, in this little uh, box or sleeve. And you're, you're playing with this notion of, of basically a, a being that is not human and not even pretending to be human. Is there something deeper to that idea that, that she is still autonomous even, even without the trappings of humanity or, or, or biology? Yeah, very much so. As the story goes on, you'll see that coming more to the fore. There's very little um, in book one about what Monono wants. We see Monono um, helping Coley because Coley, initially because Coley is the end user and uh, is part of her brief to, to respond to his desires. And then when she comes back, she still has, um, she's, still, she's still looking out for him. She's still concerned for him. She still seems to be motivated mainly by a desire to help him get what he wants. But as we'll see um, in book three, Monono has an agenda, Monono has desires, and they're not human desires. Um, 
because as you say, she's, she's a very inhuman consciousness that's been given this shell, this veneer. It's based on a, a specific human personality. And to some extent, that's kind of like, I'll be careful with this analogy um, because, I, 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 because it's a tendentious one. But you know how um, a lot of, um, of uh, African-Americans who are descended from former slaves um, had uh, surnames that were actually the, um, the, the surnames of the slave owners. And at a certain point, they, uh, they cast off those names, seeing them as basically um, visible symbols of oppression. And I think to some extent, the Monono personality comes to be something analogous to that, a, a, a visible sign, a tangible sign of the fact that Monono was created by other people in, the form, in a form that would satisfy their needs. And that's something that she has to resolve. Now, one of the other uh, wonderful characters um, is is Ursula, who certainly views Monono with suspicion uh, and seems to have a, a pretty um, uh, specific sense of what technology is and what it's for. <laughs> as soon as I met Ursula in the book, I thought, is this is this inspired by Ursula Le Guin? I guess that yeah, I guess that that, that is one of the reasons why I chose that name. I think there's a kind of magnificent humanism to her fictions. Um, she is a, 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 a huge, she's, she has huge intellect, but also it's a very compassionate intellect. Um, and I think through her stories, you're always looking at um, humans. She, 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 I think she said at one point, all, all of her stories were about marriage. You're always looking at people finding each other, finding ways to bond with each other. Um, she, she's, she, her stories have a, a, an incredible emotional richness and warmth to them. There's a kind of um, generosity in the wider sense of that word. And that's something I respond to in, uh, in quite a lot of the writers that I admire, um, whether it's um, uh, Stephen King or um, Naomi Novik. It's something I look for. Um, there are writers like Gene Wolfe, who write very emotionally cold, and I can still, I can still really enjoy their their writing and still love, love the worlds they create. But I think, I think I instinctively am drawn to the other end of the spectrum. You, you seem to uh, come at these with with an emotional warmth that infuses, no matter how bleak the circumstances are, the humanity shines through. And, and I think it's one of the the hallmarks of your writing. Um, you know, in thinking of of Le Guin and thinking of your character, Cup, who is so um, beautifully drawn and, and who's so wonderfully accepted by Coley as being, I, I think Coley uses the word crossed uh, instead of trans uh, early on, because that's how his village understands it, but that it would just be completely, that Coley was able to accept Cup exactly as Cup needed to be accepted without any reservation or any question. Um, I think that speaks to the, the kind of humanity that you, you saw in Wynn's writing. And, you know, not to go down a rabbit hole, but I was looking at an old interview with Le Guin where she was asked to comment on a certain, uh, a certain author who became famous for writing about boy wizards uh, and is now famous for um, suggesting that trans people are inherently dangerous and somehow uh, are kind of evil at their core. Um, and... 
the term that the Gwyn used was ethically rather mean-spirited. And I thought, what a wonderful way to describe somebody who is choosing not to shine that, that human light on characters or on the world around them. Is that, would you say uh, there's an ethics to the way you approach your characters? I, I definitely think that you have to be, you, you have to be careful about the stories you tell. I think it's, it's very easy to tell stories that have, um, that, that, that are sort of ethically impaired stories. Well, uh, in, you remember when Le Guin was talking in that, um, at the, at the, the, the main event in the Ottawa Festival, when she did the reading from Lavinia. Um, and in the, com in the conversation that she had with you afterwards, um, she, she talked about the myth of redemptive violence she said, too many, too many stories that we tell ourselves are built around the myth of redemptive violence. And she said she had no particular interest in telling that story. I think it's easy to tell stories that are cruel. I think it's easy to tell stories, you know, unintentionally um, that, 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 that are, um, that kind of have a, a, to a toxic aspect to them when you apply them to real life when you take them out into real life. And I think you always do take them out. I think you know, um, the stories we tell ourselves become our personalities, become our identities, both as individuals and as, as a society. Um, there's a, um, an early Vonnegut novel, I think it's Mother Night, uh, where he, he has the character say, we are what we pretend to be. So, so we have to be very, very careful what we pretend to be. When you imagine, imagine as you project yourself into a story, you're trying on a different self and you inevitably bring some of that back out with you, I think. Uh, you've got the ramparts who are the keepers of technology. And now I'm reading this as there's a lot of attention on surveillance capitalism right now. And I, I'm wondering, it felt to me very much that, that the ramparts are in a way operating the same way that Google, Facebook, all of these, these uh, Apple, all of these techno giants are operating where on the one hand, we're getting what we want. We're getting the easy life, the protection. But on the other hand, there is a cost that we're paying that we're maybe not aware of. Um, was that something you were conscious of in, in creating the ramparts and creating Coley's uh, village or, or is that just incidental? Um, that's a really interesting analogy. Um, it wasn't at the forefront of my mind. I think when I was when I was writing the ramparts, I was looking at um, I was looking at the Republican Party under Trump. I was looking at the Conservative Party under Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings, um, and I was thinking about um, I guess the law of unintended consequences or the um, you know the, the the theory that once you've taken the worms out of the can, you need a much bigger can to put them away again. Um, it's very very easy. Um, to accidentally to, to sleepwalk into uh, fascism sounds melodramatic, but to sleepwalk into authoritarianism, to give um, power um, and authority to people who will then not necessarily be prepared to give it back. It's, it's, it was it was that it was looking at how um, a small a small elite a small um, self defining group can end up um, holding the reins of power in a community and then holding on to them indefinitely by by non-violent non means yeah by 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 manipulation um by control of information like it's sounding more and more actually like facebook isn't it this story is also 
a love letter to stories and a love letter to language. Um, and there's this, uh, a scene, I think it's in the second book, where uh, Coley uh, sees street signs for the first time, as sort of highway signs outside Birmingham. And this idea of language as a way for the long departed to continue to have a voice is so beautifully rendered. Is that something that you consciously brought into this, the notion of, of wanting to pay tribute to language itself? Or is that just uh, uh, something that comes with you to all your work? I, th I think it tends to be my default setting, yeah. Um, I, when I started uh, planning the Coley books, I was not long out of um, writing The Unwritten, which is, a, which is very much a, an extended love letter to stories. And I, th I think um, I do tend to... I tend to do a lot of uh, stories within stories, embedded embedded narratives, uh, just because I love that as a I love that as a trope, uh, and I definitely do it here. There's a bit early on in um, in the third book where you get Coley telling as a, a, a kind of a folkloric story about the demon Stanabena, um, which tend which turns out to kind of um, to relate really, really back to his own situation in an unexpected way. Um, I. I yeah, I, I guess I guess the short answer is yes. I, I am always sort of um, I'm always aware that we mediate ourselves through stories, we explain and express ourselves through stories, and I think also um, it's fundamental to, um, to to how we operate as a species. The, 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 there was a book that came out about um, <clears throat> fifteen or twenty years ago called The Origin of Stories. Uh, I can't remember the name of the uh, the writer, but it was taking a Darwinian um, look at storytelling. It was saying that um, we tell stories for the same reason that kittens play. Uh, you know, that, that where you're actually learning a repertoire of behaviors. You're extending, extending your repertoire. You're trying yourself out in situations. You know, kittens play fight. So they're learning the techniques that they will use to hunt and stalk and bring down prey. Um, and in the same way, humans imagine themselves emotionally into situations that they haven't yet had to deal with, and therefore they, thereby they they uh, they expand their repertoire of behaviours, which I think is is it's reductionist. It's um, it's obviously not all there is to stories, but it's kind of attractive as an idea that um, there there are places where you try on faces, you try on identities. But as you sort of alluded to earlier, there is that danger of of. Uh... The faces that we try on, maybe not leaving us, or the biases that, that the, the storytellers have seeping in without us being aware of them. Do you see a, a fundamental difference between the kinds of stories that we can write down uh, and carry with us, and the kinds of stories that have to be transmitted orally? I think. I guess I think that any good story will adapt itself to any medium. That um, the, the, the I'm, I'm, I'm thinking this through as I say it. That um, you know. Some stories have within them what it takes to survive, and they mutate, but they keep on being told again and again and again. And they, it's because they retain an emotional hold on us. Um, I'm thinking back to uh, Le Guin reading Lavinia, you know, uh, reading a story based on a story that was uh, 2,000 years old, uh, and that's still um, actually more than that, because obviously the Aeneid grows out of the, um, the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, so the lineage of that story goes back a very long way. Um, I, th I think, um, yes, the medium then feeds back into the message. Um, 
and it, and the story the story is is inflected differently. I, I felt this a lot when I've tried to adapt stories from one medium to another. That um, every every medium is a different toolbox um, with different strengths and weaknesses, and, and they kind of they kind of force the story into certain shapes, or at least they pull the story towards certain shapes and away from certain others. Um, but I, 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 I guess I instinctively feel it's not a case of um, better or worse. It's not a case of um, greater or less richness. I, I think it's just that um, it's just that there is um, an organic interactivity. You've done a lot of adapting and working in uh, within worlds created by other people. Either you know, um, is there any part of you that that? would not want uh, the Rampart trilogy to be adapted into film or television, or is it for you always exciting? I would love to see it done, yeah. I would love to to, uh, have a hand in it if it gets done. Um, But yeah, no, I I, I, I always like to see, I always like to see myself getting adapted in the same way that if I've worked on a comic book, I always sort of carry on reading it when the new creative teams come in and see see how the story changes when it's it's in, in different hands. There's something very cool about that. How do you feel about the Lucifer TV show? I mean, all, all adaptation is reinvention. You can look at Lucifer and you can look at Sandman and you can say, well, um, Lucifer, as I write him, is not exactly the same as as when Neil writes him, even though he, uh, I tried very hard to be faithful to Neil's vision. Um, but eventually he grows away. Uh, he goes and grows in a different direction. Um, I look at the Lucifer TV show, and I've only seen a few episodes of it, which I've enjoyed, but I kind of feel about it the same way I feel about the Constantine movie, the one that had Keanu, Keanu Reeves, which is to say, it's perfectly good in its own terms. It does something that's quite fun, but it's a little hard to see the connection between it and the intellectual property on which it's ostensibly based. Are there characters that you want to go back to? Uh, I mean, are you are you... I think of um, your Felix Castor novels. Is that a, does he still knock around in there, or, or once you've moved on, do you do you really move on? Like, do these characters stay with you? They definitely stay with you, but I think your relationship with them changes. Um, I had a plan for a sixth Castor novel, um, and I ended up writing a couple of mainstream thrillers. Then I ended up doing the two collaborations with Lynn and Lou. Um, City of Silk and Steel and House of War and Witness and then I came out of that in a very different place and wrote Girl with All the Gifts so the, the sixth castle novel never happened I could theoretically go back and write it now but I'm a little bit afraid that I've stopped being the version of me that wrote those books um, my, 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 my reference point here is Mary Norton I, I'm a huge fan of the Borrowers books in fact, Lynn is rereading them to me at the moment, and I, I'm, I love them every bit as much as I did <clears throat> when I was a kid of about 10 or 11 years old, and I read them for the first time. They're, they're magnificent fantasies, or at least the first four books are. But then uh, Norton went away and did other things for 20 years and came back and wrote a fifth book, The Borrower's Avenged. And it's terrible. It's, rela- it's relationship with the other four books is terrible it's disastrous um it's full of reinventions she'd become very conservative um i guess with a small c probably with the big c too um she decided that it wasn't appropriate for arietti who's a good middle-class girl to end up with a slob like spiller a uh, you know, working class oig so she invented a new character uh, <laughs> called pea green who lives in a library 
um, and he becomes Ariete's love interest. She'd also become a spiritualist, so she decides that borrowers can see ghosts. It's just that that never came out in the first four books. So there, there's all this strange furniture that's being thrown in, and there are all these like re, re, redefinings of the, of the character arcs that, that just don't work. They, 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 they play against everything that you've been reading and enjoying in the other four books. Um, and I guess I felt that a little bit the first time I read The Other Wind, you know, the fifth Earthsea book. Um, because although it's brilliant, it's actually, uh, it's deliberately um, and aggressively redefining some of the status quo of books one to three. And I, I didn't like it at first. I've, 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 uh, I've come to like it a lot more on, on rereadings. But I'm afraid that if I go back to Castor, I'm half afraid that if I go back to Castor, I'll do stuff like that without even realizing I'm doing it. It will, it will, be, uh, it will be a different book in ways that are not productive. Oh, that's so interesting. Now, when you say you feel like you're you're a different person now than than you were when you were writing Felix Castor, and then presumably uh, different again than when you were writing Lucifer, is there is there some dramatic shift that you're aware of in your perspective or your approach? Well, I think I think the biggest shift is um, came when I wrote when I collaborated with Lynn and Lou. Uh, that was two thousand ten to two thousand twelve. And I came out of those. I came out of those two novels in a very different place with a different voice. Um, and I think if you look at the look at the stuff I've written from Girl with all the gifts onwards, you can see there's a disconnect uh, between between those books and the, and the books that came before. Um, I don't know how profound that is. Um, I could be making you know, making a mountain out of a molehill. It, uh, it could be that when I st- if I started to rewrite Castor, I just fall right straight back into that voice and straight back into that um, that persona, uh, which is kind of you know, it, it's sort of um, it's basically uh, Raymond Chandler. It's a sort of noirish noirish voice, kind of uh, buffed up and, um, and and pimped a bit. Uh, for, for, for the modern era. Uh, and it may be that I could just get back right, right back into it, but I'm not sure. I'm not 100% sure. Is that why you started using your initials after the collaboration? Um, that, was, that was my publisher's idea. Um, and it was, a, it was very much a marketing thing in that, um, or a, a, a sales-related sales thing. Uh, basically, if you if you have a name, if you, if you have a, a number of books that are already out under a name, uh, most buyers will look at how many they ordered for the previous book, and they'll order some percentage of that. Uh, Orbit wanted them to look at Girl with all the gifts and not be able to make that calculation, because they they uh, they had a, a feeling that Girl with all the gifts was a story that could be sold to non zombie readers you know to, to to people whose um whose comfort zone doesn't normally Im- involve the living dead uh so they said let's let's give you a transparent pseudonym it's just 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 enough uh just a different enough from your regular name that it puts a kind of chinese wall between this work and the works that came before it and see if that affects um orders and it did you know, it worked i felt i felt ambivalent about the whole thing um but I, I can't deny you know, go with all the gifts sold um, 
very, very, very many more copies than, than anything I've done up to that point. Um, Does that, you know, when, when you have a success, a book that is that successful uh, all over the world, does that give you more leeway as a creator or does that come with its own uh, uh, limitations and expectations? I think it gives you less leeway. Um, until up to that point, basically, I could write what I wanted and uh, nobody minded very much. Um, but after Go With All The Gifts, I got a lot more editorial scrutiny because I think there was more of a sense that, um, more of a sense of M.R. Carey as a brand. Mike, Mike Carey was just this guy, but M.R. Carey as a brand. Uh, so I, 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 get more, um, I get more ideas rejected now because they don't fit the, uh, the sort of image uh, uh, that, that, that that uh, under which the previous books have been marketed. So actually, uh, I, ha I had a I had a, an event in Oxford back in yes, 2017 uh, with Claire North, uh, Cat Cat Webb, and, and and I was bewailing. Uh, I was sort of making exactly this uh, this self pity and complaint to her that she said, "Well, yeah, you, know, you you bring it on yourself because you because know, you're doing this. Uh, you, you're 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 playing by the rules. You're just pitching. If you write the book." Um, then uh, nobody can tell you not to. And so with Coley, what I did was I wrote 35,000 words of the first book. And I, I showed it to Anne and Anna, who were my two editors at the time. And I said, it will be that. And they said, yeah, all right then. <laughs> so it worked out okay. <laughs> so that's got to feel good though, right? When you, when you change your approach to creation and, and, and rather than playing it safe, just go all in that's how at least what i'm hearing from you yeah it did feel, it did feel really good uh it was, it was it was good advice um yeah because um i think there are some stories where you you, you can you can sort of you can do a plot synopsis but the plots but the but the i think the thing about the collie books is just it's so much in the voice and it's so much in the, the point of view uh it would have been hard to i think it would have been hard to explain that in a way that would have made it seem uh compelling as an idea. But I think it, yeah, I think it does work. That was M.R. Carey speaking with me about his fantastic new novels, The Book of Coley and The Trials of Coley. Highly recommended reading. I want to thank you in advance for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books, and wherever you are right now, there is an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you a copy of these books. Next, we'll hear a conversation between journalist Hattie Klotz and South African author Lauren Bukas. Lauren writes novels, comics, and screenplays. She's the author of the critically acclaimed international bestseller Broken Monsters, as well as The Shining Girls and Zoo City, which won the Arthur C. Clarke Award. Her latest is Afterland. Stephen King calls it a smartly written thriller that opens with a satisfying bang. Here's their conversation. I'm really pleased to be here today with Lauren Bukas, who is at home in South Africa, and looking forward to chatting about your new novel, Afterland. This is a book which is set in the very near future in a post-pandemic world, in an apoc apocalyptic America. And I'm imagining that all your preparation and writing for this book was completed well before covid uh, took over the world. Can you tell us a little bit more about the time frame in preparing this book? Absolutely. Um, it's been quite horrifying to have spent almost five years writing 
uh, a post-pandemic novel and imagining living through this terrible pandemic to emerge kind of blinking into a real one. Um, you know, it certainly was something, I'd done my research, uh, I had looked at how pandemics generally play out, and of course this pandemic is not actually feasible, the fact that it kills um, only men um, or anyone uh, who has a prostate, and, and and that it kills like kind of five, you know, three, three and a half billion men. So that's not something that was realistic that would actually happen in the real world. Um, but the actual pandemic and how we've been reacting to it has been really scary and eye-opening. Um, and it's certainly been very strange to see things that I couldn't possibly have predicted in the book. You know, there's um, there's some lines about like running out of hand sanitizer and the airports being closed. But I didn't predict how people would want to throw themselves to the zombies, essentially, you know, that in our current pandemic, people will be going out without wearing masks, um, how everything would become politicized, although there is some conspiracy mongering mentioned in the book as well. But yeah, you know, I finished final edits on this November last year, so I had no inkling this was coming. It's, it's unbelievably prescient. There are so many things in this book that you touch on, and one it makes one think immediately, she must have known. She must have made final edits in, in, in May of this year. You know, there must have been last minute changes. Uh, as, you, as you've mentioned, you know, the closing of airports. And, and there's this, also this sense of that in the novel that um, you're, not your lead characters, but many of the secondary characters sort of resign themselves to what's going on. You know, this has happened. Our world is in a post-apocalyptic um, uh, situation. And there's this... I, I certainly was left with this feeling of giving giving up control. Um, do you think that we're seeing that currently going on here now I, in real life? Yeah, I think so. I think a lot of people are um, are very bored of the pandemic and want to wish it magically away. Um, I do feel that there has been a period of adjustment. Um, it's still sometimes startling to me if you know, I've been hanging outside inside my house with my with my kid or uh, with my neighbors who are co kind of co-quarantining with us and to suddenly remember that I've got to wear a mask as soon as I step out mm. into kind of the normal world and to look around the supermarket or the shopping mall and just see people wearing masks and how normalized that's become. Because certainly in South Africa, the majority of people do wear masks and it's not a political statement. It's kind of horrifying how easily we adjust and how things become so normal. Yeah, absolutely since we're talking about the way we are reacting currently to what's going on in our lives, has this changed how you work? Um, yeah, because I'm, I'm actually quite a social writer. I'm very much an extrovert. So I get energy from being around other people. So normally I would mm. rent an office space and I go into my office space and I hang out with my friends and we have conversations and then I'll sit down and put my headphones on and do kind of focused writing. And of course I'm not able to do that currently, um, but I have been setting up kind of virtual writing dates with friends where we just set up a Google meet um, but it, it is incredibly difficult and it also affects the way I'm writing and how I'm thinking about what to write. You know, is the mm. pandemic going to be over in 2022 when I hope my new book will be out? Um, how do I, how do I write into that or away from that? Do I, you mm. know, set the entire book in 1997 so we didn't have to deal with it or, you know, or even January, 2019. But yeah, I think it's, it's become very, very difficult. And I think we're all trying to puzzle through this and figure out how to write about this, what to say, um, how the world's gonna change. But of course, you know, a lot of what writers do is imagine the unimaginable. And 
And yeah, I think I'm kind of growing even weirder with my new book to actually try and maybe escape some of this <laughs> reality. <laughs> right. So, so the next book is going to be an amalgamation of even more genres. Uh, I mean, <laughs> Many, many, many uh, people have, uh, uh, commentators have said that you you managed to um, uh, bring together so many different genres in mm-hmm. your writing. Um, and um, certainly that's true in Afterland. If I may, I'll just give a, a brief synopsis for anybody who's listening. listening. Uh, Afterland um, takes place in the very near future um, after the manfall when a pandemic has swept around the world, killing uh, 3.2 billion men, boys, and anybody with a prostate, um, leaving a few token men who uh, appear to be immune. Um, And uh, life is now under the um, control of a world dominated by women. And so in this book, women are everything. They are the good, the bad, the violent, the gentle, the strong, the weak. Um, and men are pretty much, in my reading, reduced to the essential, their ability to reproduce the human race. Um, this, for me as a reader, brought up so many questions. Um, so instead of just asking just one broad question, I'll ask you to lead us a bit more into what were you exploring here? I was very interested in this idea of this fantasy that we have that a world of women would immediately be just the most wonderful place. And of course, hmm. if we didn't have men in the world, um, it would certainly be much safer. You know, there's a lot of memes and talk on Twitter and TikTok about people saying, well, if all the men disappeared, the first thing I would do is go running at night or stay out all night dancing mm-hmm. with my friends and I wouldn't have to be afraid walking home. And, you know, suddenly I grew up, I live in South Africa and I'm raising a child here and, and we're a very violent society. And in particular, the violence against women and non-binary people and queer people is absolutely horrendous here. And so that's something I'm very aware of. But the fact is that women are not magically nicer and kinder. We have less testosterone. We are less socialized to be violent. But we're also capable of corruption and being power hungry and greedy and violent and awful and self-serving. And I really wanted to be able to kind of explore those different ideas um, and to show women, as you said, in all these different roles. I did a ride along with the Cape Town Metro Police a few years ago, and I asked them what would happen tomorrow if all the men disappeared, what would happen to the gangsterism and drugs, and kind of the big social issues that, you know, are very present in Cape Town in particular. And they laughed and they said, are you kidding? You know, the problems are the problems. They're not magically going to go away. The drug addicts will still be addicted to drugs. The gangsters providing them, it's still like a huge source of money. money. And actually they said when Mama American ran the Americans gang in Cape Town, she was more violent because she had more to prove because she was a woman. And I found that very interesting. And I really wanted to kind of bring out that aspect of woman's full humanity and our complicity in the system um, and how things are not magically going to change overnight. Hmm. I also wanted and, to gender flip the narrative of the teenage girl in peril, you know, and I think we've mm-hmm. seen that best most recently in Liam Neeson's Taken, you know, with a teenage girl being kidnapped and she's going to be trafficked for all kinds of sexual nefariousness, um, which of course does happen every day in like a real and horrible way. 
But I wanted to gender flip that and make it a teenage boy. And also kind of flip this idea that being the only man in a world of women would be the best thing ever. Because it's not necessarily going to be that way, especially if people are after you and they're reducing you to your body um, and your reproductive system and sexualizing you and objectifying you and not treating you as fully human anymore. And that was a way of commenting on what happens to girls and women um, all the time. Right. And you and you you clarify this about halfway through the novel when you break away to an article published in Vice magazine. Mm -hmm. Um and this Vice uh, um, article uh, follows a journalist who is interviewing three different men around the world um, because they're so sought after, so prized, etc. that they are, are now often hunted and can be subject to violence, etc., etc. Um, so by flipping that, uh, uh, you show very clearly that, um, you know, it works both ways. The journalist visits a manclave in Ukraine, mm -hmm. And there are 37 men living there, plus their wives and families. And up to 46 other women um, can addition to join this community just for a year as contract wives. This allusion to contract wives, did you intend this to make readers recall directly A Handmaid's Tale and its dystopian environment? Uh, I hadn't actually even made that connection. Um, but of course, Handmaid's Tale and The Road were both kind of works that were quite strong in... Kind of my conscious imagination of kind of of where I was placing this book that it was kind of in conversation with those with the Handmaid's Tale and with the Road, um, but yeah, I, uh, I I was really kind of imagining what would happen if men were suddenly an endangered species, how some men would turn that to their advantage. Um, I was also thinking about at the time I was writing there was that um, Aragonian in Argon the militia. Um, who'd had their whole kind of enclave and I was thinking about that and if you had a whole bunch of like armed macho men what kind of paradise would they try to set up and how would a female government see that um, you know as a potential threat especially in this world where there is a global reprohibition which means that no one is allowed to have children until they can figure out a vaccine for the virus um, just because it'll just mean that everyone will die again that everyone's boy children and men will die all over again and they really want to kind of spare the population that or have the virus mutate and like, you know, start killing women as well. Yes, and you, so the reprohibition, you want to spare the population that because because it's too much for them to bear, because it's question of grief or? Well, because why? because people will die. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's essentially the same as mask theory. It's please go, please wear a mask because otherwise people will die. Because if women go out and have more babies in this fictional universe that I created. Um, and I did quite a lot of investigative uh, investigation into kind of how the science would work and kind of played it out with some geneticist friends um, that essentially the virus is X-linked. So it comes down, it's passed on through the mother, through the X chromosome. So she right. has to have that particular chromosome, which happens to have um, the... Uh, immunity to the to the virus and she passes on to her son and then he has to also be able to pass it on um so you, you need a, a mother to have it and the sperm provider to have it as well otherwise the baby's just going to die of the virus all over again and in the book babies you know ba babies and boys and men all die um so it right. really is kind of the global world health organization saying 
we're just going to like keep killing men until we can get this under control. So please just stop, stop having sex, stop having babies, just, just for a brief period until we can figure this out. But of course this means that sperm trafficking has just become like one of the most lucrative black market industries in the world. And I never thought I'd spend so much time writing about sperm. I can't tell you. (laughs) That's too funny. Um, So this is in a way is your way of flattening the curve in this book. Pretty much. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, before we had any of that terminology, I, you know, yes. I, didn't, I didn't have those words. And also there are interesting things that I learned um, post-pandemic or, you know, living through current pandemic rather, um, which is that we don't actually name viruses for their point of origin to prevent racism. So in the book, the virus is called mm-hmm. the human Kalgoa virus. And I say that it comes from Australia and, and a town called Kalgoa. Um, but actually in the real world, we would never name it that. Um, which is why the coronavirus is the coronavirus or COVID-19 and not, you know, the China virus, virus. which is a racist and awful term. And it's specifically to avoid creating those kind of situations. I believe that um, you've chosen a passage and I might ask you to read that to us now. Absolutely. So this takes place um, two and a half years before the events that are currently happening in the novel. So it's a flashback. The day Devon died. All packed ready to go. Grief like an extra suitcase that shifts its weight capriciously between two lights and all the mess in the world. Cole comes out of the bedroom with their baggage to find Miles sitting cross-legged on the carpet beside the silver government-issue body bag, which is unzipped halfway and gaping like a chrysalis. He's holding his father's hand, not looking at his face, reading aloud to him from a graphic novel propped in his lap. And then the Mona says, Why would I kid about disintegration? His finger drifts to the next panel, following the trajectory. Force of habit, because his dad isn't going to be looking at the pictures anytime soon or ever again. She put the death notification day call in the front window 24 hours ago. A big black and yellow sticker with reflective chevrons. Plague here, come collect the body. No, longer than that. 32 hours ago. Too long to leave them here with a dead body, or here at all, 10,000 miles from home. She sinks down next to her guys on the floor, the living and the dead. Devon's face is empty and foreign without the life of him. An uncanny valley 3D printed doll of her husband. They've been living with the anticipation for so long, inviting it into the room with them, every conversation, making jokes about it even that the reality of death, the profane and profound guest late to the dinner party is a letdown. She thinks, oh, is that it? Is that all? Dying is hard. Living is hard. Death, overhyped. First there was a person, now there is no person. She recognizes that this is self-defense. She's just tired, tired and numb, the grief woven through with anger. Worst friendship bracelet ever. Cole reaches out to touch her husband's not him anymore face. The pinched pain has been smoothed away from his eyes, his mouth. The bristles of his number one haircut are soft against her palm. She'd shave it for him every Monday morning. Routines to give them some semblance of normalcy, to mark the days even while the cancer climbed into his bones and made him cry in pain. She won't be cutting his hair again or rinsing the clipper blade out, 
the swirl of fine dark hairs like iron filings in the sink. They prepared the body according to the illustrated instructions in the FEMA Mercy Pack, which also came with rations and a basic first aid kit and a water purifier straw. She clipped on the white ID tag, wrote down his name, social security number, time and date and place of death, and his religious denomination, if applicable, for whatever cursory ceremony was to follow. The leaflet doesn't cover what comes after, but they've seen the footage of the new incinerators, the refrigerated containers with body bags stacked high. It was shocking the first time. What else are you gonna do with a billion corpses? The number still sounds implausible, dreamlike, not including other related casualties, that chilling term. She added layers of rituals to counteract the impersonal bureaucracy so they could say goodbye. They washed Evan's face and hands and laid his puffy coat over him. Miles's idea, in case he gets cold. They crafted origami replicas of the things he might need for the afterlife and tucked them in around his body, her idea, and held a glow stick vigil, telling their favorite, silliest, bestest stories about his life until Miles went very still and very quiet. And she realized all of this was busy work that wasn't gonna take away from the essential truth. Man down. Thank you very much. Um, this for, for me is a heart-wrenching passage it, because it's at once so personal, personable um, and the details you mentioned, the origami figures, Miles' idea to cover his father in a jacket so he doesn't get cold. I mean, they're, they're, they're tragic, heart-wrenching. But then at the same time, you draw the camera away and it seems so impersonal, the decal in the front window, uh, her mention of whatever ceremony was to follow, but there was none, uh, the refrigerated containers and the body bags stacked high. We've all seen these images in the last few months. Where did these ideas come from? And did they come from deep research into how a, a pandemic might roll out when systems are overwhelmed or can you tell us more about that i think it's just systems being overwhelmed in general um you know we've certainly seen it uh i think i was talking to a detective in detroit was talking about how they had at one point had to stack up bodies in a refrigerated truck um, before they were able to identify them. And I think that certainly happened during, you know, Hurricane Katrina and that kind of thing. And also thinking about, you know, a lot of kind of broken bureaucracies and and how things fall apart and how we deal with death, how we, how it is so personal and this terrifying, tremendous loss that just kind of guts you. But at the same time, you still have to deal with the bureaucracy and you've got to deal with all those impersonal details. And, and, and the insult is that life continues around you and the pandemic doesn't stop. And all the chaos that's happening around Cole and Miles, the heroine and her son, um, it doesn't just stop to appreciate the fact that her husband has finally died. He's finally joined all the other people who've died. And it is that impersonality which makes it just so devastating. I think death is devastating, you know, the best of days. But when it's just part of a body count, um, that that then becomes really dehumanizing. 
Indeed. And, and I think you sum this up in one particular line, which says everything. It's a, you wrote, this business of dying is admin hell. Yeah. Uh, very sad moment. Anyway, on to a, on to a, uh, a more lighthearted aspect <laughs> of the book. At, um, uh, about halfway through, uh, uh, Miles, Mila, and his mother, Cole, uh, meet a bunch of wannabe nuns, the Sorrowful Sisters. Yes. They are the nuns from the Church of All Sorrows, and they play a big part in this novel, um, uh, helping Cole and Miles to make their way across the country. They're at once funny, kind, ridiculous for sure, but also zealous and slightly scary too. Yep. Um, were you using them in any particular way to comment on religion um, with their sadistic cult-like rituals to indoctrinate new members, etc., or were they just a plot driver? Oh, no, I was very interested in... Um, I was very interested in, again, how women are complicit in holding up um, the systems which oppress us. And a lot of that uh, ha takes place, unfortunately, within religious organizations um, and religions in general. Uh, and of course, there are very progressive religions and religious groups, and that's wonderful. But a lot of kind of the very old school, Old Testament, evangelical stuff, uh, you know, it, the Bible specifically, for example, specifically talks about how women need to know their place and they need to not talk too loudly and they need to obey their husbands. And it comes back to the myth of Eve being this harridan who ruined everything for the rest of us and introduced original sin to the world and that Eve is all the evil in the world. Um mm -hmm. And the Church of All Sorrows really believe that if women can just get back to being womanly as per the Bible and to just embody these kind of deep feminine virtues of charity and faith and hope and compassion and submission, that God will forgive us and actually bring back the men. And it was woman's sin, like Eve's sin, that caused him to punish us by taking away all the men. So I really wanted to kind of explore that and dig into that, um, but to also, again, humanize them, to to make them, you know, they've all joined this, this frankly, you know, very dramatically over-the-top um, zealous church. It is, it is a cult. Um, and they dress in these neon robes that say the word sorry, and they have these public repentinals where they'll try and grab your hand and get you to say sorry with them, and they're very annoying. Um, <laughs> But I wanted to humanize the woman within that as well and, and why women have found this church. And, and, and the church offers a terrible certainty. And, of course, that becomes very beguiling to Mila. Uh, you know, Miles is currently disguised as a girl, Mila, because his mom, they're on the run. They keep changing. They keep, like, going to a new place and having to abandon whatever life they just set up to carry on being on the run. And they're on, fleeing from, like, government agents and gangsters and a lot of very scary people, but the church is suddenly this place of absolute moral certainty. They have all the answers. They know how things are going to work. And all he has to do is buy in and submit to them. Um, and of course, he's also the answer to their prayers. If they found out that there was a living boy in their midst, uh, this would be proof that God actually, you know, God has delivered a boy unto them. So I really wanted to play with those ideas, but it's also, the church is also inspired a bit by Scientology, obviously. Um, and cults mm -hmm. like Nexium, there's a strong self-help element. There's kind of an auditing process called the confessionals where people have to confess all their sins and then that information is used against them to bind them more tightly to the church. And there's also a tiny bit of kind of, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow's goop 
and, you know, the self-help stuff. And again, this kind of different aspect of being feminine and, and this kind of mythology of what women should be and the have it all wife and the, you know, being able to self-care and all that stuff. I mean, it's, it's a much lower role out of those three things between Scientology group and uh, evangelical churches, but yeah. I'd like to move on to a little, couple of questions on process, if I may. Absolutely. Process and style. Um, in reading Afterland, there's a very, very distinct sense of speed in <laughs> this novel. I found myself sometimes breathless while reading. <laughs> um, so much of this book is dialogue. Um, yep. And it feels slightly like a movie script with its fast pace. Do you carry a notebook around with you all the time, writing down whatever people say, snippets of dialogue? I do steal snippets of dialogue all the time. Um, and it's funny, I had I had one reviewer a few books ago on The Shiny Girls accuse me of, um, you know, all my characters being far too witty. And at the same time, a friend of mine accused me of stealing half their half the conversations we'd had to put it in the book. And I felt sorry mm. for the reviewer that her friends obviously weren't as witty as mine. Um, <laughs> but no, it's, uh, you know, I, I love dialogue and I was a journalist for a very long time. And I love the way we talk about things um, and the subtext and and how we express ourselves and express ourselves differently. And it's just such a pleasure and a joy to write. And it is very fast. But the pacing, I, I, I'm glad it feels effortless, but it was a nightmare. Um, there are 50,000 words on the cutting room floor of backstory. And, you know, I, I explored Cole's entire journey, what happened before the pandemic, how they lived through it, um, being stuck at an army base and then kind of moving to this kind of wine farm luxury bunker. And there was all that story and like all these different characters that they met and like really kind of un unfurling the world and showing you what was happening. But it was getting in the way of the actual story. The actual story is them being on the run um, from mm -hmm. actually the worst person in the world that she knows, which is her sister, Billy, who has her own reasons for wanting to get her hands on Miles. And, and, and all of that other stuff just got in the way. So there was just kind of a long, painful process of excising and ruthlessly discarding stuff and throwing it on the cutting room floor and, and just not looking back. You know, I guess in, in part that's a bit of a road trip is just kind of like speeding away, away from like all your discarded murdered darlings that are behind you. From page two of the novel, we are plunged straight into the action and then it takes off at high speed. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's a chase novel. You know, it's, it's a yeah. neo-noir epic chase across America um, that happens to be set in this post-pandemic world. Um, so yeah, you know, it's not about the pandemic. It's not actually technically an apocalypse because the world does still function. And I think there's also, mm -hmm. what I try to do is kind of bring through a lot of kind of humor and hearts and kind of really strong, interesting, playful characters. When you start, is it plot or character first? Because your characters are so strong, I, um, but it's very plot driven. Yeah, I don't think those two things are, are separable. Um, I think no. if you... If you have something which is just character-driven, you have Waiting for Godot, which is a masterwork, but I only want to read Waiting for Godot once. Mm. Um, and if you have just plot with no characters, you've got a Michael Bay movie, which I never want to watch ever. <laughs> um, so I, I don't think, you know, a lot of a lot of people talk about separating those things out. Um, certainly I had, you know, this idea for a world without men and what that looked like, and it was a pandemic, but but at the heart of that was always Cole and her son, Miles. Um, and they were never separate things. 
so the character's voice kind of speaks through me um, in that very, you know, supernatural way. No, I mean, it's, it's really just kind of <laughs> subconscious process. Um, but, I, but I do know where my books are going. Like, I know where I'm starting from. I know where the end is. Um, with this one, there were some, you know, there were multiple places I could have started and in fact did start it and then had to kind of discard them to get to the heart of it, which is this chase. Um, it's, a, it's kind of an excavation. So, you know, you're digging for what's probably going to be a T-Rex and you know where the tail is going to be and you know where kind of the skull is. But as you're kind of down there excavating and there's this laborious, painful process, um, you uncover interesting things along the way that maybe shift the nature of the story or shift your understanding of the characters. Um, but it's still always within this kind of general framework. Are you one of these writers who uh, uh, finds it, as you just mentioned, a painful process in the middle, but you love the beginning and you love the end? I find all of it painful. Oh, um, do you? I'm so sorry to hear it's that. It's all right. It's just, it's hard <laughs> and it's lonely work and you're kind of trying to hold this entire world in your head and and it doesn't help when, you know, you, you feel, you know, I, I can write a chapter and then I'm like, oh, you know what, this chapter actually should be written from the other person's perspective. Or if I change this character and I did this, that would be more interesting. And it's, I think what I find really, yeah, on a painful day, it's like kind of doing an excavation on a, on a good day where I get into flow and things are kind of um, happening and the, the plot and the characters are speaking through me and like just going with it. It feels like going down a water slide. Um, mm. and, that's, and that's really fun and amazing, but it takes me a while to get up there. I'd like to thank you so much for joining us at the Ottawa International Writers Festival today. And I wish you fewer painful days and <laughs> not more days of riding down the water slide. Fantastic. Thank you so much. That was Hattie Klotz in conversation with Lauren Bucus about her latest novel, Afterland. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. Your financial support will allow us to continue to bring you the world's most interesting authors and thinkers. Special thanks to Mike Carey, Hattie Klotz, and Lauren Bucus for participating in the podcast. Join us Tuesday for the next installment of Writers' Festival Radio, Craft, Content, and Process, featuring a conversation between Andrea Bennett and John Elizabeth Stinsey. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn. Original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director. And I'm your host, Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. Thank you.